Rabbi Eli Kampfer is the co-founder and executive director of Mechon Hadar, which means in English the Institute of Pleasantness. Sure. Okay. Um, it is a cutting-edge learning institute in New York like no other. Uh, it is a transdenominational learning center where you can go at any age and study text and Jewish liturgy and music um, with some of the best teachers in the world who are in New York City. You can go for one-week programs. You can go for a whole year. Is there a month program? Not yet. There's two months program. Um, it is an awesome opportunity. So if you're going to New York and you like learning, look up mechonhadar.org. There are great opportunities. We are sending the Elsters there first, followed by Gaila Wilner, so they will come back and report back. We're going together. Oh, you're going together? Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, Ellie has previously worked as a journalist, a banker, and a corporate fraud investigator. He's a graduate of Harvard College, um, where he and he, he has completed his doctorate in liturgy at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he, all, where he was also ordained. A Wexner graduate fellow and Derot fellow, Ellie is a co-founder of Kilat Hadar, and has been named multiple times to Newsweek's list of top, the top 50 rabbis in the United States of America. He was elected as an inaugural Avichai fellow and is the author of Empower Judaism, what independent minyanim can teach us about building vibrant Jewish communities. I would say you can buy the book after the event, but we sold out last night. However, if you would like to buy the book, just uh, what should they do? See you? Yeah. See Ellie afterwards, and we'll figure out how to get you a copy. With that, again, thank you to Shira Amalo for hosting us. Thank you all for coming out on this sunny end of summer Monday. And the microphone and the blackboard or whiteboard are all yours. Thank you. Um, oh, too. Yeah, I'll take those. It was a pleasure to learn with many of you last night. Good. Um, and it's a pleasure to, to learn with you all right now. Um, I, just, I, I didn't say anything about Mechonadar last night. Maybe I'll just say one word now to, to supplement what, what Ari said. Um, we really are, it's a Jewish learning institute. Um, and it's, it's meant to engage anybody who's interested in delving into Jewish text learning. Um, and you can do that in any number of ways, uh, including, and I, I wanted to, uh, since I schlepped it here from New York, we have a program where you can actually learn with a partner who, um, who is anywhere in the world. It's an online learning program. Um, we provide you all the materials and a faculty member sort of guides you through the process, but you get to meet someone else uh, in Israel, in New York, in Buenos Aires, wherever you'd like, uh, we'll match you up and you can, you can learn with them. I'll, uh, I'll pass around this, this, I don't know, a few flyers here, so you can just take one or share one um, or ignore them. Um, I'll, if you can figure out the image, does anyone know what the image is, is meant to, uh, to convey? We have a very fancy and high-concept graphical design. Yes, the old-school telephone. This is the, the internet is a series of tunes, you see. Um, okay. Um, the other thing I'll do, we, we have a number of... Uh, if you don't want to ever talk to anybody else when you learn, and you also don't want to leave your uh, chair, you can just go online and read a whole bunch of stuff, listen to a whole bunch of stuff, um, we actually have a, an amazing, uh, my colleague Shai Held and soon um, my other colleague Ethan Tucker, uh, they write a weekly Devar Torah, um, which is like no other. Um, so if you are interested in that, I'll, I'll, send, I'll send this around and you can sign up and this will be the end of the commercial. Um, this is an official sheet here. <coughs> okay. okay, today we're going to be talking about Avinu Malkenu. Avinu Malkenu is, um, although it's a prayer actually in many traditions that's said every day, um, in the Ashkenazi tradition, which many of us uh, are a part of, its main focus is on high holidays. Um, and so we're going to be spending a little bit of time today thinking about what is the meaning of Avinu Malkenu, and amazingly, unlike almost all the prayers in our prayer book, we have a story about the writing of the prayer. That, um, that will help us sort of understand, my contention is, the narrative around the writing of the prayer will help give a new window into what this prayer is really about and how we might connect to it in different ways. But just sort of off the, off the cuff, when I say Avinu Malkenu, what do you say? <laughs> what comes to mind for you? 
Avinu Malkeinu. Someone can even translate it if you want. Our Father, our King. Okay? When I say our Father, our King, or Avinu Malkeinu, what comes to mind? What do you associate or what feeling? Reverence to God. Reverence to God. Okay. Great. You said song? Good, right? The, the, so much, I think, of High Holidays is related to the music. Actually, we're talking about this. Those of you who managed to, to, to buy the book um, that, that I wrote talk a lot about how, actually, when you talk about prayer, so much of the emotional experience of prayer has very little to do with the meaning of the words. The greatest example of that is kol nidre. The words kol nidre, if you're actually to read them, actually, they're very hard to translate, but even if you could translate them, it's basically a legal formula releasing you from vows. That you just say, the, 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 the litany that you say in Kol Nidre is just a, a synonym after synonym for vow. Eskimos, snow, Jews, vow. This is, you know, this is what we have. Um, but really, I think what drives so much of the emotional content of that prayer is, is the music. Um, okay, so we have the music of Avinu Malkeinu. And by the way, once I was at a place where uh, the, the person who was leading davening didn't do that tune for Avinu Malkeinu and they were booed out of the synagogue. Okay, um, what, else, uh, what else comes to mind for, for Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king? Yeah. Uh, like my heart opens, like a sense of vulnerability and openness. Okay, openness and vulnerability. Is it, can you just say a bit about why? Is it, is it the words themselves, our father, our king, or the, the moment? What's... Okay. It just, it just opens me up. Good. So it's really, it works for you. Okay. Other associations with our Father, our King, yeah? Mercy. Good. Okay, right? Um, Avinu Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, have mercy on us. Right? So I'm getting sort of the sense of mercy. Anything else that sort of comes up, comes up for you? Has anyone else translated it a different way? Oh, compassion. Okay, good. So mercy and compassion. Um, you could even say, Avinu Malkeinu, Chonenu Vanenu. Avinu Malkeinu. You know what Chonenu means? Chain? Grace. Right. Be gracious unto us. Grace is, that is to say, something we don't deserve. You give it to us for, for, for nothing. Yeah? Good. It's in the plural, right? Right. It's um, um, avi. It's not uh, avi malki. Not my father, my king, but rather our father, our king. You know, have have compassion. Rachem aleinu on us. It's the plural. Okay. Um, good. Yeah. I was there. Uh-huh. Just the, the fact that it's sort of on the top of the billboard charts makes it something that we can all sort of rally around. Um, yeah? Good. Okay, excellent. It's repetitive. You know how many times we say in the traditional machzer, you know how many times you say the phrase avinu malkeinu in a row? It's now up to 44 times. It's a double alphabetical acrostic in some ways. So... Um, it didn't always used to be that way. We're going to see actually the most limited version of, of, of uh, but, but it also is, it has that repetition side to it, and it also has the simplicity to it. The sentences are not very, there's not, not a lot of subordinate clauses. It's just sort of right there for you. Yesterday we looked at who shall live and who shall die. That also sort of cuts right to the heart in very simple and, and short phrases. Um, okay, well, well, one of the things that's amazing about Avinu Malkeno, as I mentioned, is that we actually have the story of the writing of Avinu Malkeno. And what I want to do with you is to spend some time analyzing um, the story itself, the narrative, uh, and then the characters who make up that narrative, who are actually interesting characters that we're going to get to know a little bit. And my hope is that these characters will introduce us to other aspects of Avinu Malkeno itself. So what I'm going to do is just pass out the, uh, the sheet. Do we have enough that people should share? Okay, you should share. We're saving trees. Good 
Uh, while the sheets are going around, I'll just say one other, one other word about the method we're going to do here. <clears throat> the method we're going to look at, as I mentioned, <clears throat> is looking at the story. But when you look at stories in the Talmud, the great thing about, I'll say two things about stories in the Talmud. One is, stories in the Talmud are, like Avinu Malkenu, very terse, very short. And so any detail that emerges, you have to ask yourself, why is the detail there? Okay, it's not a, uh, uh, the brothers Karamazov. It's, it, this is a very tight story. And the good news is, if you don't like the story, it's going to be over pretty quick. Okay? The second thing about the Talmud, uh, um, Talmudic stories to note, just, just as a word of method, um, is that, the, you, know, you, know, you know how many Talmuds there are? There are two. Okay? When people say the Talmud, like you read in the New York Times and they say Talmudic, um, they're probably referring to only one of those Talmuds. One Talmud is the Babylonian Talmud, right, which was edited around the 6th century. And the other Talmud is the Jerusalem Talmud, thank you, um, which was edited um, 100 years earlier. Okay? The Jerusalem Talmud is a little bit like an almost finished draft of the Babylonian Talmud. This is in very rough terms. But oftentimes the Babylonian Talmud is in dialogue with its predecessor, the Jerusalem Talmud. So when you see a story in the Babylonian Talmud, you can also see the development of that story, the sort of predecessor of the story. This is the To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, rewound, right? So this is the previous story actually in many times exists in the other Talmud. That's um, the, the Eretz Yisrael Talmud, the, um, the Jerusalem Talmud. So we're actually going to get to do that as well. Um, amazing. All at lunch. Okay. So um, what I brought for you on the top of the page, a page does everyone have a, a source sheet or eyes on a source sheet? We're good? Okay. I'm going to ask you to, to read the story. Um, it's actually two small stories on the top of page one. Uh, just box number one. You don't have to flip the page. Um, I'm going to ask you to read that out loud with a partner. And what I'd like you to do, much like we did last night, although we did with a prayer last night, I'm, I'm going to ask you to ask, um, to notice things, to ask questions about the story. Okay? So read the story out loud and ask what's strange, what's unusual, what questions do you have, what would you like more information about? Okay? So let's take, we'll take six minutes, read the story on page one. What, what did you notice in the story? What sort of, there are two stories. So we could, let's look at the first one. Actually, um, we'll read the first one. A story, Tanu Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. Maaseh, there's a story of Rebbe Eliezer who declared 13 fasts on the public, but no rain fell. Now note here, we're not talking about a high holiday scenario. This comes from the section of the Talmud that is about drought. This is, uh, you know, as they say, in Yana de Yoma, it's uh, relevant, relevant Torah, okay? So what are you supposed to do in a drought? If there's a drought, you basically have two plan of attack, as the Mishnah describes it, the earliest code of Jewish law. The first plan of attack is you declare a fast, okay? You declare a fast, and the idea is the fast is going to cause people to repent, and then the rain will come as a, as a reward or as a sort of tur by people turning back on their ways. Think... Nineveh, okay, that we're going to encounter in the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur, okay? So the idea, they had a massive fast and it worked. Um, so the idea here is that if you have a fast, then the rain will come. Now, if the fast doesn't work, you know what you have to do after that? Do another fast, <laughs> okay? And you keep fasting until, and the, the fast would go on a Monday, Thursday cycle, okay? So you do Monday, Thursday, Monday, etc up until you get to 13 fasts, okay? And that is indeed what Rebbe Lezer does here in this story. Rebbe Lezer follows the rules exactly and says, I'm gonna declare a fast and it doesn't work and another fast and it doesn't work. Okay, um, at the end, that's a little ambigu ambiguous, Bachrona, at the end, at the end of what, maybe of the fast, the people started to leave. He, Rebbe Eliezer said to them, have you prepared graves for yourselves? All the people burst into tears and the rain fell. Now that's a short story, <laughs> okay? This is New Yorker short story, puts them to shame, okay? Um, so what do we notice about this story? 
What question came up for you or what, 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 what came out for you in this story? Are you ready to die? That you're, you're commenting on Rebbe Eliezer's comment to the people. Is that it? You're sort of trying to explain that. Good. What is the force of that comment? Rebbe Eliezer says, have you prepared graves for yourselves? What is he trying to say in that? Is he saying, are you ready to die? Or? Surrender. Sur yeah, surrender, meaning? Good. Okay. Maybe this is a goad saying, you know, are you ready to die? Have you surrendered? Yeah? Yeah? But until you internalize it, that you're preparing your own grave, it's not until you get the message personally does something actually happen. Uh-huh. You, once you internalize the fact that you're about to die, then it really becomes something else. By the way, on Yom Kippur, we in fact do this. We, we, we rehearse our own death. I mean, not eating and drinking is a pretty good approximation of what it means to be dead. But not only that, also the, the, the attire that we wear, the white. You know, the white robe that you wear is a, is a funeral robe. Um, so there is a sense of preparing for your own death. You go through a death-like experience on Yom Kippur, and then you come out the other side. Now, here's my question to you. Oh, you wanted to make comments. Sorry, please. Oh, good. Okay, so was the fast, what was wrong with those fasts? Why weren't they working? And was it because the people weren't sincere? And then when Rabbi Eliezer says this three-word challenge to them, they do sort of let, sort of, you know, let their emotions burst forth, and then it works? Is there something else that's going on there? Maybe they, yeah, please. No, I think he was pretty harsh on Good, okay, this is the other thing. What is the force of Rabbi Eliezer's statement? Is Rabbi Eliezer saying, people... Reach deeper into yourself. I know you can do this. Or was it, people, you're going to die. <laughs> See you later. No more announcements, right? We're done. Uh, you know, and I, I sort of, I wonder, you know, what's the force of them leaving? You know, so, sort of imagine the scene. This is the last ditch effort. It's fast number 13. And then they're saying, yeah, we're going to go now. This isn't, this isn't working. Is it like, you know, the, the ancient equivalent of checking your phone during the sermon? Or, you know, did he take offense and then sort of, you know, puts that out on them? Or is he sort of a master understander, you know, knows how to, how to sort of encourage people to break down to their real true selves? Yeah? I think it's a loss of faith that they are, and they go into these motions and that they're uh, ready to leave and desert the place. Uh, that's how I read it, that they're actually leaving the place where they're, um, and, and it's, it comes from a place of uh, no faith. They, they have, they're leaving because they have no faith. Yeah. Now, by the way, notice what's the proximate cause of the rain. What immediately precedes the rain? Tears, Tears right? So again, the imagery that you see here is that the human action below, the tears, causes the heavenly action above. Okay? Um, and that's going to be an important theme when we look at the second story. Yeah. Good. What, 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 are they repentant? Are they simply now faced with their actual fear? Are they crying because their rabbi just yelled at them? Right? That's hard. Yeah, rabbi. It's a question of them just going through it. If, if this is calling to question them just going through the motions, it seems pretty um, extensive. And anyway, 13 fasts is a lot of fasts if, if they're not able even in that much to put themselves really into it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Imagine the process of going through, maybe it's 13 because it's a, it's a lot of fasting and eventually you're going to sort of get the message. Okay, so let's hold this. This is story number one. Now let's look at story number two. Shuv. Now the word shuv, again, or another story, shuv, like tshuva actually, um, return, um, told you that these stories are linked. They're not meant to be in isolation. It's part one, part two. Okay, so let's read part two. Another story, Maseb Rebeliezer. Same character, Rebeliezer who this time he leads the Amida, literally he goes down before the ark. This is because in the ancient synagogue, the structure of the ancient synagogue was such that the prayer leader was in the middle and they would go down into a pit and lead the Amida, not the Shema, but the Amida was led from a pit to fulfill the verse, says the Talmud, from the depths I called to you, so sort of to live out this idea of I'm, I'm actually getting into a physical depth and calling out. 
But I, anyways, so he goes down before the ark, literally leads, you know, or, um, which means he leads the Amida, and he says 24 brachot. Now, the regular weekday Amida, how many, how many blessings are there in the regular weekday Amida? <laughs> this is a good trick question. <laughs> okay, so the name of the weekday Amida, what's the name, a, a synonym for Amida? The Shmon Asrei. Okay, Shmon Asrei means 18. So we count, you're, you're bored and shul, you start counting the blessings. What do you come up with? 19. Oi, this is a big problem, okay? That's a whole other story, whole other class, how we got from 18 to 19. But bottom line, in the time of Rabbi Eliezer, there were 18 blessings. Okay, just know there were 18 blessings from Rabbi Eliezer. So he says the 18 blessing Amida, and he adds another six. That's because, as I mentioned, there are two ways to fight a drought. I don't know if you tried this here. <laughs> Number one is the 13 fasts. I'm assuming that one hasn't flown yet. Number two is a special amida that comes after the fast. If the fasts are not working, special amida, where you take the regular amida and you add six special blessings, which are actually listed out uh, in the Mishnah, in, in, in this uh, section of the Talmud. Okay, so he does exactly what the Mishnah says. Takes the regular amida, adds another six blessings. What happens? Not answered. Lo he is not answered. Now, what happens next? Yerad Rabbi Akiva Acharav, Rabbi Akiva goes down, that is to say, leads the prayer after him and says, this is his Amida. This is the entirety of what he says. Now, I brought to you in the brackets here, um, just so you can see, it's even shorter than the printed versions of the Talmud. If you look in the manuscripts, you take out everything in the brackets. So like the shortest version of this, probably the original version, read only, Avinu Malkenu, Elanu Melach, how many words? It's only five, seven, nine, eleven words. Okay? So Rabbi Eliezer just said 24 blessings. That's a lot of words. Okay? And then Rabbi Akiva gets down, says 11 words, says Avinu Malkenu twice. Bam. Here comes the rain. Now, why did it work for Rabbi Akiva and it didn't work for Rabbi Eliezer. So let's read a bit in the story. Um, well, actually, let's just look at what he said. What did he say? He said, Avinu Malkenu, we have no king but you. Avinu Malkenu, have mercy on us. Now, just, just notice, you have the two aspects of, we didn't talk about this, but you could do a whole exercise of, what's the difference between Avinu and Malkenu? Right? Is it an av? Are you, are you addressing a, a parent? Or are you addressing a king? And if you address one or the other, how is that different? How is that experienced differently? Okay? But just notice the prayer here. Avinu malkenu, ela'ata. Our father, our king, we have no king but you. Our father, our king, rachem. Have mercy on us. Now, do you know what the word rachem means? It means mercy, but it means actually a womb. A rechem is a womb, okay? So you have, on the one hand, the king imagery, and on the other hand, you have the parent imagery. Actually, even though Avinu is a father, you have a female um, uh, parent image that's being used here, the womb, okay? Both of those aspects are said by Rabbi Akiva. It worked. Great job. He's answered. Now, what's the coda to the story? Havu miranane rabbanan, the rabbis, this is also ambiguous. Problem with the Talmudic stories and what makes them so interesting is they're, they're not even easy to understand. They're so short, but you can't even understand them because the, the words themselves are ambiguous. So the rabbis either shouted or complained. Like, L'chun like, al Adonai can be a shout of joy. Rina, like, you know, um, popular name, means to shout with joy. So maybe they shouted with joy, hooray, the, the rain came. Or maybe it's also it's a form of complaint. What do you think they might be complaining about? Sorry? Too much rain. Too much rain. Oh, that's another story, by the way. There's a, there's a rabbi who was a miracle worker who prayed. He, he prayed, Choni, uh, circle drawer, he prayed, and there was too much rain. And he says to God, no, no, not, not that much rain. Um, and then God sort of turns off the faucet. Good. Okay, this is another possi possibility is that they were actually, um, who, what, what, what was the content of the gossip? Good, right? Rabbi Akiva, 
is the winning rabbi. Rabbi Eliezer is the rabbi who didn't quite cut it. And maybe the other rabbis are saying, oh, look who, you know, I know what shul I'm going to next week, right? I'm going to go to that shear, okay? But, um, so maybe that's part of what it is. Um, and then we have a response in the story. Um, a heavenly voice came out, a bot call, an echo of a voice came out and said, not that this one is greater than that one, rather, this one passes over his midot, and this one doesn't pass over his midot, end of story. <laughs> okay, now we have problem only in that I didn't understand <laughs> what that means or what the force of that is, yeah. Midah, so, okay, it, it, it's a little ambiguous as well, but a midah means a character aspect, okay? Um, we're going to c- come back to that term. A character aspect could be, you know, sort of kindness or mercy, something like that. Now, just so we understand what we don't understand, okay? Just, the, when, they, when, the, when the heavenly voice comes out and says, not that this one is greater than that one, who's the this one and who's the that one in that sentence? Not that this one, Rabbi Akiva, is greater than that one, Rabbi Eliezer, but rather this one, who? Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, passes over his midot, and this one, Rabbi Eliezer, does not pass over his midot. Okay, so whatever passing over your midot is, it's not as good, right? Sorry, what, um, sorry. whatever not passing over your midot is, is not as good as passing over your midot. You want to pass over your midot. Now, this is a little bit also, I think, strange because your midah, anyone does the, the um, what is it called now, the Musser movement, right? Every month we're going to work on a new midah. It's like patience and, you know, love and whatever. These are things that I would want. I don't want to pass over them. They're positive character traits. But we're going to see the way in which this actually comes uh, to be something negative. Okay, we'll, we'll get there in the, in the end. But the bottom line is here, what's the function of the batkol? What's the function of the heavenly voice? What's it coming to do? Yeah, to teach, in, to, to what purpose? Who's it helping? Rabbi Eliezer. This is the, um, the PR firm for Rabbi Eliezer, okay? Heavenly voice, not bad, okay? So the heavenly voice says, no, no, it's not that he's greater than him. It's just that he knows how to pass over his midot and he doesn't, okay? That's the end of the story. Now, um, what... So we have some question marks, but at the end of the day, we know that Rebbe Akiva um, did something that worked, and Rebbe Ezer did it. I'll say one other note before we move on to the parallel story, which I think will open up some of these questions. Um, when we say Avinu Malkeinu, do you remember where we say Avinu Malkeinu in the prayers? When does it come? At the end, okay? It's the same as here. What we do on high holidays is we spend a lot of time on the Amida, a lot of time. Like the, the, what we did last night, Unitana Tokev, one part of the repetition of the Amida. You can spend, in traditional service, you can spend two, three hours on the Amida. How long do you spend on Avinu Malkeinu? I don't know, you sing it a few times, maybe you get up to seven minutes, right? How long was that, was, did it take Rabbi Akiva to say these 11 words, right? He did it like that. This is the same thing. When we do it on our holidays is, we have our Amida, we spend a lot of time on it, and then we're going to say, you know what, we're pulling out all the stops. We're going to Avinu Malkeinu also. Avinu Malkeinu is the prayer in our modern day liturgy that's meant to be like, forget that Amida, that didn't work. Let's go to Avinu Malkeinu. This is really going to work, okay? So, so liturgically, that's its function. It's like a substitute Amida. You can't do it instead of the Amida, but you still have to sit through the Amida. Okay, but after the Amida happens and we still haven't broken our hearts, we still haven't gotten to where we need to be, we try Avinu Malkeinu. And, and that's why it always is there at the end. That's why, by the way, Avinu Malkeinu, you don't say it on Shabbat, but even when uh, Yom Kippur falls on Shabbat, you say Avinu Malkeinu at the end because you're saying, you know what, I'll, everybody, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Okay, now let's look at the next story here as a way of trying to figure out what's going on more deeply with these characters. Um, okay, so turn over the page. Page two at the top. This is the story in the Eretz Yisrael Talmud, the Yerushalmi. Same characters, 
probably version one of this story. We'll see the difference, and we're going to see the way in which uh, it might help us understand this. Okay, Rabbi Ezer made a fast, but no rain fell. Rabbi Kiva made a fast, and the rain fell. Okay, here we don't have prayer. We're going back to the fast mode, and you just have fast versus fast. Rabbi Ezer is beaten by Rabbi Akiva. Now, this is the, the most of the story is the coda. Here's the coda. Rabbi Akiva entered and said before them. We don't know who the audience is. Maybe it's those rabbis in the other story who were complaining, cheering, or gossiping. Maybe it's every, the assembled masses, the ones who Rabbi Ezer told them, go prepare your graves in the other story. Rabbi Akiva says before some group of people, I'm going to give you, I'm going to explain to you what just happened. I'm going to say it in a parable. What's this like? It's like a king who had two daughters. One of them was brazen, chutzpedik, right? Literally, it's chatzufa, okay? It's the same word. And one of them was proper, kshera, kosher, okay? You have a chutzpedik daughter and a kosher daughter. Now, when the brazen one, when the chutzpedik one wanted to enter before the king, he said, give her what she wants so that she may go away, right? Just get her out of here, here. Whatever she's asking for, give her so that she'll leave. But when the kshera, when the proper one, wanted to enter before the king, he was patient because he liked hearing her pleas. Okay? Now what's the parable? How does the parallel, the parable work? Yeah? Good. Rabbi Akiva says, hey, you know what? I'm not so great. In fact, I'm kind of the daughter that the king doesn't like. Avinu Malkenu doesn't like me and just wants me to get out of the way. But if you're really beloved by the king, you're Rabbi Eliezer. Now, what's the theological problem with this parable? Yes. Right. The more God loves you, the more God doesn't answer your prayer because, in fact, what God wants most is to just hear you cry. Anyone feeling better? Right? Okay. Um, so this, but this is what Rabbi Akiva resorts to in order to defend Rabbi Eliezer. Now, the Talmud notices that this is somewhat problematic, and the Talmud says, is it permissible to say this? <laughs> Can you really make this claim about God that God only loves the people whose prayers are not answered? If your prayers are answered, oh, you're, you're sort of step, step below. Rather, it was to prevent blasphemy of the house of Rebbe Yezer. Okay? That's to say, Rebbe Akiva worked hard to prevent Rebbe Yezer's house from being blasphemed, from being embarrassed. He put sort of threw God under the bus, <laughs> as it were, in order to save Rebbe Eliezer. Okay? Now, just taking this image here for a second, when you think about the person who's saying the prayer of Inu Malkenu, now, what's the image of the person saying of Inu Malkenu? It's a chutzpahdik daughter. Right? Your chazen, I don't know what your chazen looks like, but in this parable, he or she should look like a chutzpahdik daughter. Okay? When you're saying, by the way, when you're saying Avinu Malkenu, in this parable, our father, our king, is the same character. Who am I? It's not just the daughter. I'm a princess. Right? I am a chutzpahdik princess, and I'm talking to my, my dad, the king. Right? That's what's going on according to Rebbe Akiva's parable. But what's more interesting for us is what is the relationship between Rebbe Akiva and Rebbe Yezer such that Rabbi Akiva goes to such lengths to make this claim about God in order to protect the honor of Rabbi Eliezer. Now, what is the relationship between the two of them? You know? This, is, this gets to the part of the Talmud where the Talmud is made up of a lot of quotes from rabbis. And if we hear this as Rabbi so-and-so said and Rabbi blah, blah, blah objected and then Rabbi bling-bling combined them, well, that's one way of doing it. It's just Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. But these are actually characters. So what is the relationship between the character of Rabbi Eliezer and the character of Rabbi Akiva? What do you think? Not father and son, exactly. Teacher, student. Okay, it's interesting you said father and son because in another story, Rabbi Akiva refers to Rabbi Eliezer as his father. Actually, when he dies, he calls him my father, my father. 
In some ways, he's his spiritual father. He's his teacher. Okay? He's his teacher. So now think of the scene. Okay? You're the tenured professor on faculty. You get up and lead, I don't know, the colloquium, right? And then the young whippersnapper, who's an associate professor, gets up and everybody applauds him. How are you feeling? You know? Right? A little bit of anger. A little bit of, I'm threatened. Right? Now, at the end of the day, Rabbi Akiva saved everybody's life. Right? He ended the fast. But uh, he ended the drought. But at the same time, his teacher was dishonored by his actions. So he asked to sort of backtrack and explain, no, 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 it wasn't really me. It's not about me. You are still the great one. You are still the best teacher. Now, what's amazing about this is the relationship between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva goes, runs very deep. It runs actually to the other story in rabbinic literature in which a heavenly voice comes out and supports Rebbe Eliezer. Do you remember, have you ever heard of this story? Correct, the one with the walls. This is the story of Tanor Shalachnai, an oven that the rabbis were fighting about. Rebbe Eliezer says the oven is pure. All the other rabbis say the oven is impure. Is this a problem? Shouldn't be. Rabbis disagree all the time. But then they take it up a notch and they say to Rebbe Eliezer, well, it gets complicated. Rebbe Eliezer says, oh, actually, I'm right. You know how I'm right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a tree jump up into the air. And if, if I'm right, and the tree jumps up into the air, I say, we don't listen to that. Well, I'm going to turn this water going backwards. The stream's going to run backwards. No, no, we don't listen to that either. Well, if I'm right, let the balls of, that, of the Beit Midrash fall down. And they start to fall until another rabbi says, no, no. Keep those walls up. You have no business being involved in this, you walls. And then Rabbi Ezer says, if I'm right, let heaven prove it. And a voice from heaven comes out and says, the law is according to Rabbi Eliezer. And then his rival in the story, Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Yeshua says, Loba we don't listen to heavenly voices. Right? And the majority rules. Now, the story ends there for many people, but actually the story continues. And, and that's where I want to pick up for a second because it's worth, it's worth looking at. Look at page two, the next box down, number four. On that day, Rebbe Eliezer answered with all the answers in the world, but they, the scholars of the baby drash, they didn't accept them. Then, he goes to this whole rigmarole, the dot, dot, dot that I just said. What happens afterwards is, um, in that moment, they brought all the pure items that Rebbe Eliezer had declared pure and burned them. They took a vote and they excommunicated him. Okay? This is a full blown onslaught attack on Rebbe Eliezer, okay? They said, who will go and tell him? They didn't even fire him to his face. He wasn't there, okay? Who's gonna go tell him? Rebbe Akiva said to them, I'll go tell him, lest another person that is not fitting go and tell him and destroy the world. So who is Rebbe Akiva? He is the interlocutor. He's the person who bridges the gap between the other rabbis and Rebbe Eliezer, who I would say in this story is very similar to heaven, right? Heaven is on Rebbe Eliezer's side. Heaven says he's right. And Rebbe Akiva is the one who can go from the human court to the heaven, to Rebbe Eliezer. Let's see what happens when he goes there. What did he do? He wore black. He covered himself in black. He removed his shoes. And he went and sat at a distance from Rebbe Eliezer of four amot, four arm lengths. His eyes flowed with tears. Here we have the tear imagery again. Rebbe Eliezer said to him, Akiva, what's special about today? Rebbe Akiva said to him, it seems to me, kimdomeli, it seems to me that your chaverim, that the friends are separated from you. That's all he says. He doesn't say, Rebbe Eliezer, I have bad news for you. You were excommunicated. You're fired from the Beit Midrash. Seems to me that your colleagues have separated from you. And then what happens? His eyes, too, flowed with tears. What is Rabbi Akiva's function? What Rabbi Akiva does is mirrored in the person he's speaking to. Rabbi Akiva cries. Rabbi Eliezer cries. Rabbi Akiva can get someone else to cry. Okay? Now, what's interesting about Rebbe Eliezer is Rebbe Eliezer is actually not known as a crier. 
The story goes on, and it moves on and, sa and says that everything that Rebezer saw with his eyes burned. Okay? Fire came out of his eyes. So on the one hand, you have Rebbe Akiva, who is water, and you have Rebbe Eliezer, who is fire. The other attribute of Rebbe Eliezer, which is interesting to note, is Rebbe Eliezer is one of the five students of the first rabbi, Rebbe Yochanan ben Zakkai. Each of them are described in Pirkei Avot as having certain attributes. Do you remember what Rebbe Eliezer's attribute is? Remember heard this? What he's described as? He is... Correct. A plastered cistern. You know what a cistern is? Like a pit that's plastered that never loses a drop. Now, usually that's understood to mean he has a perfect memory, right? He never loses anything. He never forgets. Whatever he receives, whatever flows into him stays. But in the context of this, what does it mean? He never sheds a tear. He's the wrong guy you want to put up at the Amud when it's time for the rain to come. He's anti-rain. He holds it in. He never loses a drop, okay? Versus Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva is the one who, by his actions, causes others to actually let the rain flow. When Rabbi Eliezer causes others to let the rain flow, how does he do it? He yells at them, right? Have you prepared the graves for yourselves? But Rabbi Akiva is the one who can gently approach Rabbi Eliezer and say, this is what's going on. Rabbi Akiva is that person who can cross the boundary between the two groups and cause some change in a gentle way. So this is, I don't want to sort of want to close with this idea of what does it mean to pass over your midot and not pass over your midot, right? So we need one last piece of information in order to unlock this. The last piece of information is, um, what does God pray? We know that humans pray. We do a lot of praying. But did you also know that God prays? Of course God prays. God's a good Jew, right? So where do we see it? How do we know that God prays? We know it from a verse, of course. So let's take a look at page five. Okay, page five, source number nine. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Mishum Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yochanan says in the name of Rabbi Yossi, um, this part's not translated, but I'll just work with me here. How do I know that God prays? As it says, I will bring them to my holy mountain, and I will rejoice them in my house of prayer. Not their house of prayer, my house of prayer. God says, my house of prayer, therefore God prays. Prove it. Now, the Talmud asks, since we know that God prays, we've got to ask, what's the prayer that God prays? <laughs> right? What does God pray? Hear him in the English. Rav Zutra Bartuvia says in the name of Rav, this is God's prayer. May it be my will that my mercy will conquer my anger and that my mercy shall override my attributes. Right? That my... Yiratzon um, milfanai, may it be my will, sheikh rachamayat kasai. My mercy should defeat my attributes. And I should behave with, my, with the children through the attribute of mercy and go above the letter of the law with them. What's God's prayer? God's prayer is anger, mercy. I want my mercy to beat my anger. What's the attribute? The attribute is anger, right? The midah is anger. It's also a character trait. I get angry. God certainly gets angry. We know that from many, many sources. But God is praying that his mercy will conquer his anger. So what's the way in which Rabbi Akiva is different from Rabbi Ezer, according to our first story? Rabbi Akiva is the one who can pass over his anger attribute. Rabbi Ezer can't pass over his anger attribute. Rabbi Ezer is an angry guy. He's angry at those people who were fasting and then left. He's angry at his rabbinic colleagues for excommunicating him. And he's angry at the world and starts burning it with his eyes. But Rabbi Akiva has a different approach to the world. His approach is mercy. So when he says to God, Avinu ma'kenu rachem aleinu, have mercy on us, he actually embodies the attribute of mercy. He is mercy. He's standing before God and his mercy has defeated his anger. And as a result, God also, God's mercy defeats God's anger and the rain falls. 
So part of what we um, see from this text of, of the story of Avinu Malkeinu is that it actually matters less what you say. It's a nice prayer, by the way. It's a nice melody. I'm not taking anything away from the prayer. But what also matters is who says it. That is to say, who are we when we pray? It's not a magical formula that sort of makes it, gets us across the divide just by reciting it. But rather, it's a test of our own attributes. Are we mercy embodied? Can we overcome our anger? Or are we someone more like Rebbe Eliezer who holds it all in and is ultimately unable to cross that divide? So part of, I think, the story of Avinu Malkeinu is, is to say on high holidays, when we say it, when we experience it, that we should embody not only the message of the words, but the person who wrote the words. Rabbi Akiva is our model of what does it mean to go between. And, and in that way, my hope is that we will all sort of have a high holiday prayer experience that allows us to have our mercy beat our anger and bring in a world filled with water and good blessings for next year. Thank you. We have a, about two or three minutes for questions if anybody. Does this mean that every rabbi has only one midah? Aren't there some, isn't there a combination of, can't somebody embody both anger and mercy? Rabbi Eliezer didn't have any mercy in there? I, I think, like, like humans, everybody has all of that within them. God, and God, God self, also has 13 attributes, including the attribute of uh, grace and mercy, but also the attribute of truth. And I think the question is not whether one is entirely uh, one attribute or another, but rather which attribute is winning. What's the movie with the internal, the animated movie with the uh, emotions? Right? That's the same idea. Sort of which, which of those attributes that we contain all of them, which of them is carrying the day? Which of them do you allow to sort of burst forward? And I would say for Rabbi Ezra, it was, he tended to, it was easier for him to be on the side actually of truth I mean, after all, the halakha was like him. He was right. But they said, no, 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 we're, even though you're right, we're not really going to listen to you. He was truth. But Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva is something other than truth. He's mercy. Not that he doesn't have truth within him, not that everybody doesn't have mercy, but that's their sort of leading characteristic. That's their dominant characteristic. Yeah. Correct. It's sort of a, a, a proto, an early Musar sort of um, uh, tale in which certain Midot, as I said, the Musar movement it makes a big deal of these Midot and modernizes them to some extent, but certain Midot carry the day for any individual. And that's the work of prayer, is to work on that Midah. Exactly. Even, even your use of the word mercy. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Correct, yes. Actually, this. Okay, so first of all, these guys lived a long time. So that, you know, but I think what, what's amazing about the relationship between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ezra, and by the way, Rabbi Ezra also didn't start till he was 40, says one story about him. So not only is Rabbi Akiva um, sort of his student, he's like his, his Rabbi Eliezer is his model of sort of the adult who comes to Jewish learning to modernize it, you know, at a later age. Um, Rabbi Ezra becomes the greatest rabbi of his generation. Rabbi Akiva is like the next guy coming down the pike, you know, and he has the same story. Um, so he's not young in the sense of years. He's young in the sense of experience, I would say. And so, you know, it, it's still shocking to have somebody with that little experience or someone who studied under this rabbi sort of one-up him in public in front of everybody, and it works. You know, it's just a very touching moment of sort of the waning of Rebbe Eliezer. And we see how much more Rebbe Eliezer could experience that as an insult. That's not the, old, the first time he was insulted by his rabbinic colleagues and also the gossiping. Are these the same rabbinic colleagues who were gossiping at this moment and later on going to excommunicate him, right? They're, they're sort of, they're, they're, the, um, the isolation that he experiences is so intense, Rebbe Eliezer. Um, it's, it's very, very powerful. I mean, I, in his place, I also might all, you know, I might not have so much mercy myself, I might also be sort of full, filled with anger. Yeah. Yes. Um, today, I happen to be reading uh, Masecha Yoma, or, or uh, Rosh Hashanah, pardon me, Rosh Hashanah. 
And um, I think it said in there that on terms of blowing the shofar, if you are equally distant from a city in which you know they're going to blow the shofar and a city in which you know they're going to be praying, you should go to the city where you know they're going to be blowing the shofar because the shofar, hearing the shofar is such an important commandment that it overrides the, uh, the, the uh, directive to pray because uh, shofar is in uh, the Torah, but praying is only rabbinic. Now, my, my question is, what, to me that has something to do with this, because it has to do with what puts you in the right state yeah. to, to, to have for, what puts you in the right state to communicate your internal, your, your inner feeling to Hashem. I think that the, the two associations I draw from that parallel, which is fascinating, one is Avinu Malkenu is like the shofar blast, whereas the Amida is like the prayer. That is say, the prayer is fixed. We know what it's going to say. Avinu Malkenu was a spontaneous moment of a bursting forth, you know, which in some ways the shofar is, and, and in many ways it being um, sort of pre-verbal. You know, only 11 words is barely verbal. Um, and, and in fact, ultimately, it wasn't about the words, it was about the person who said it. And the other association I have is the tears. You know, what brought the rain in the first story was this um, sort of emotional uh, expression that is like a shofar. Shofar is compared to so many things, but one thing it's compared to is, is um, the cry of a mother who finds out that she's lost her son, spe specifically Sisra's mother. Um, and, that, and that's another, another sort of uh, parallel, which is when you're crying in prayer, it's this other experience of what it means to engage with the deep emotions of the high holidays that the shofar may also be parallel to. I'm wishing everybody a wonderful, happy new year. Thank you.